Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Bob Langer. Langer, an institute professor at MIT, is one of the nation's most accomplished scientists and scientific entrepreneurs. Much of his work over the years has focused on tissue engineering and drug delivery systems. It would take half of this show to list all of Bob's contributions to biotech, so I won't. But the short version goes something like this. He's the most cited engineer in history, and the sixth most cited scientist ever, according to Google Scholar's H-Index. He's one of just a handful of people ever elected by peers to all three national academies. He's won the top awards for science and engineering from the Queen of England and two U.S. presidents. And he's had a hand in founding more than 20 biotech companies. Langer recently turned 70 years old, and he's still running a lab of 100 people who are thinking big. One recent project, it's a sort of biodegradable needle that can be swallowed and still deliver insulin for diabetics without the need for shots. I've known Bob for about 10 years, mainly focusing on his startups. Despite his busy schedule, I've always found him to be courteous and responsive and a pleasure to interview. More than 600 people, former students, colleagues, partners, and the like, showed up for his 70th birthday symposium last fall. That says a lot. Bob's path to success, like most, didn't always move along in a straight line. In this conversation, he's quite open about some of the tricky junctures he encountered along the way. His resilient character, he would call it stubbornness, has been every bit as important to his success as his intellect. Now before we get started, I want to mention a couple of events to mark on your calendars. I'm organizing the Cancer Summit series this spring to raise money for cancer research at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. David Shankine of GV and Cindy Peretti of Foundation Medicine are just a few of the industry leaders coming together for the Boston Cancer Summit on April 16. A couple days later, on April 18, you can hear from Hal Barron at GSK and Ira Melman of Genentech, who will be among the distinguished speakers at the San Francisco Cancer Summit. You don't want to miss these outstanding events. Go to TimmermanReport.com and click on Kilimanjaro Climb for all the details. Now, please join me and Bob Langer on the long run. Bob Langer, thanks for joining me today on the long run. My pleasure. So, Bob, I'll just let the listeners know straight up that I've interviewed you a handful of times over the past 10 years or so, I guess, uh, mostly in your context as a scientific entrepreneur. Um, but I recently, we, we crossed paths at this PureTech Health Conference uh, at this lovely Caribbean island and had some time to talk, which made me think, it's about time that I get you on my show. <laughs> so, <laughs> Well, thank you. Thanks for joining me. Now, the other thing that I, I was impressed with was that, you know, I know that you recently turned 70 and, uh, you know, this is, you've, you've won all these awards, right? But you're not one to rest on your laurels. You seemed really... Um, trim and fit and relaxed and busy as always. Um, so I think before we get started, uh, is there any like secret that you have to healthy living or improving your, your health span to keep, uh, keep doing what you do? Well, I think I do what you do. I exercise a lot. You climb mountains. I, I, I do running and lift weights and go on the treadmill. But I think, you know, exercise has been a good thing for me, partly because I like to eat too much. But, uh, but, but exercise is probably the one thing I do a lot of. And other, other than work and spend time with my family. So that, that, that maybe helps a little bit. Do you get ideas while you're physically active? Yeah, sometimes. I mean, I think about stuff while I'm exercising. I mean, you know, and, and I mean, I, I probably shouldn't say this, but geez, I, a lot of times I work while I'm, you know, I even have correct, you know, like if I'm on the uh, recumbent bike, I, uh, and I exercise, uh, I, sometimes I go over papers that my students give me and things like that. So I often, you know, work a lot while I'm exercising. Well, you know, people do have treadmill desks. I mean, I know that's a yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. I, well, I, I even do it sometimes on the treadmill without a desk, but I sort of do it on a high incline, and I sort of taught myself how to write not too sloppily on things when I'm on a high incline in the, on the treadmill. Yeah, you, if you're typing email, you could uh, have a few typos, I suppose, <laughs> yeah. bouncing around. Yeah, 
Okay. Well, so we'll, we'll get into some of your your habits and uh, your current projects later in the show. But as you know, I like to start out with a bit on uh, the person's origins, where they came from, um, how they got on their career trajectory. Now, I know you've told this story many times in different contexts, but um, so I hope it's not too boring for you. But um, could you just start me off? Like, I know you're from Albany, New York, upstate New York originally. Right. Can you tell me about like that upbringing? Um, what was that like for you uh, growing up there in, say, the 50s? Yeah. Yeah, so I, I was born in 1948, and I did grow up in Albany in a small house. My dad ran a liquor store. My mom was a homemaker, and I had a sister. I have a sister still. And, um, you know, I really thought I had a pretty normal childhood. You know, we lived on this small street, Tudor Road, and— We'd end up playing sports with, you know, baseball and football and basketball with the kids in the neighborhood. I went to public school 27, uh, you know, for my first bunch of years. And, you know, I was pretty good at math. I wasn't very good at uh, English or other things like that. And then I went to high school and, you know, sort of more of the same. Uh, And then I uh, but I I really liked Albany. I still have fond memories of it. I, I think a lot of people haven't thought it's a great city, but I. I always have had very fond memories of it, and you know, I felt I had a nice childhood. Middle class, it sounds like. Um, what what kind of uh, community? I know you've got uh, a university there too, but what was uh, your your school environment like? Yeah, well, my my grammar school environment was, you know, just I mean, it was wasn't that big a schools public school twenty seven, and. You know, the kids were from, you know, the neighborhood. I'd actually walk to school, you know, and, and, and that I'm amazed that my mother let me do that. She worries a lot, but she did. I think it would, people, uh, you know, it's probably different then than it was now. So I'd walk to school and I liked doing that. And, and you know, play, they, there was a playground in the back of the school and myself and other kids would, you know, play, play in the playground. And my neighborhood in Tudor Road, one of the, couple of people across the street from us had some pretty good chunks of land and, you know, and we'd, you know, then, so that was like, you could play baseball or, or football or things like that there. And, and so we did, and it was, it was just fun. I mean, it was, you know, it was nice. I had a lot of friends and, um, you had a lot so of that was, that was independence from an early time. The parent, the grownups weren't hovering around <laughs> and guiding every yeah. step. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say that's true, though my mother really, like I say, she worried a lot but she, about everything. She still does. My mom's 95, still worries a lot but, about me and my sister. But, but, but she, you know, I think it was a different time. So she didn't worry about me going out and playing sports. But, you know, when I went to camp, if I was going away, you know, like when I was like 11 years old, she'd get very worried. And I remember my sister and I, when she, they were driving us up to this camp, you know, we'd keep counting the worries. She kept saying, well, what happens if it rains? What will you do? And well, so well, it's not that big a deal, but there, you know. So, but but yeah. So I'd I'd say that um, it was it was a pretty nice childhood. Okay, so you um you go to public schools. How did you get interested in science or or engineering? Yeah, well, a couple of things, I guess. I mean, and I'd like to say that it was really systematic, but it wasn't. You know, a couple of things I think that made a difference when I was a little kid. You know, my parents got me for presents. Like there was this company Gilbert, and they made these erector sets and these chemistry sets and microscope sets. And I, I like them. I mean, you, you could build like a robot with a erector set and with a chemistry. I said they had all kinds of chemicals. So I had this little lab I set up in our, our basement. And I mean, it was pretty crude lab, but yeah, I'd like magic and stuff. So I'd make, you know, different solutions and mix them together and they'd change color. The microscope set they had this thing where you could watch shrimp hatch. And so that, that was probably one thing. And, and then the other thing about engineering, I really didn't know what engineering was. Uh, I actually, it's embarrassing to say, I thought engineering meant like a railroad car, but um, or running a railroad car. But my dad said, you know, if you're good in math and science, you should become an engineer. And there was a guidance counselor at my high school. Uh, and he also said, if you're good in math and science, you should be an engineer. And I didn't like English. I didn't like French or things like that. And I wasn't very good at them. So I, that's so I, that's why I applied to engineering schools. But it wasn't terribly well thought out. So you sounds like you did some tinkering by yourself in the basement. Um, yeah, I did. I, I did. I, I like that. 
Was there a, a particular teacher or mentor? I mean, you mentioned a guidance counselor, uh, but was there a class that just jumped out at you and made me, made you say, boy, math and science is what I, I love? Yeah, you know, not really. You know, what happened was when I was a little boy, my dad and my grandfather played a lot of math games with me, and I, and I liked that. I, I, I really liked that in math. And I did like the, the high school, you know, there were a couple of math classes that I, that I enjoyed, but I don't know that anybody there was great. In fact, it's interesting, the teacher I think I liked the best was the history teacher. Uh, but, uh, and science classes, they, at my high school, they were okay, but they were certainly nothing great. Um, so I don't think that those things had that big an influence on me in terms of being positive, uh, you know, the classes. They, they were okay, uh, but they weren't, you know, spectacular. Were you the valedictorian? No, I actually was fifth in my class. So there were, there were people who did a good deal better than me. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Now, this would have been, by the time you graduate high school, this would have been uh, the 60s. Uh, 66. You, uh-huh, 66. And so uh, you have to decide where to go to college. Um, you end up going to Cornell, not too far from home. Um, how, did you right. de- how did you pick Cornell? Well, I, I actually I applied to MIT and I didn't get in. And I, uh, you know, and then the other schools I thought about were Union because that's where my dad had gone as an undergraduate, RPI because that was a very good engineering school right near me. And I had, you know, gone to RPI Fieldhouse, you know, ice skating when I was a little boy. Cornell, I heard, was very good. You know, it's an Ivy League school, a very good school. Uh, and, and also you could get, like, if you were in New York State and a lot of the colleges I applied to were in New York State, you could uh, you could get what's called a regent scholarship, so that would pay for part of of your education, and so uh, so you know really at the end of the day, Cornell was the best school that I got into, uh, and so I was excited that they let me in, and I went there. And did you study chemistry from the get go? Yeah. So my first year, well, I was in engineering, and but I had took chemistry my first year, and chemistry was really the only course I liked. Or, and did well in. I did terrible in physics, and, and a lot of the other classes were, were hard for me. And so I, uh, so, so I did study chemistry and, and, uh, from the get-go in the sense that then after the first year, you had to decide what you were going to major in. And I decided since I didn't like any of the other engineering things, I, I'd do chemical engineering. So it was almost by an elimination process that I went through that. Again, not terribly well thought out, but you know, that's, that's what I, you know, I was a young kid and I didn't, you know, that was what I decided to do. Did you have to take a number of these other humanities courses like English and such and, and kind of struggle your way through them? Well, you know, you had to take one humanities course and, and actually I kind of enjoyed those a little bit, but I was an awfully slow reader, but I, I, but you know, you had to take a lot of like engineering courses like mechanics and dynamics and you had to take physics courses and, uh, you know, and, and all kinds of, 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 of different chemical engineering courses later. And, but you take one humanities course a term. And so I did that. But, you know, some of those were kind of interesting, like history. The only thing that was hard for me is they decide, a lot of people were fast readers and I was a very slow reader. So, it, you know, it was hard for me to sometimes keep up with it. But I tried and I, I, think I managed, I guess, I, to do it. Now, you ended up graduating with distinction. So I think you did okay at Cornell. Um, but I did notice you graduate there in 1970. Uh, this would have been peak of Vietnam War times. Um, what, um, what was your story there? Yeah, well, at first at Cornell, I mean, it was interesting. I mean, not only was it Vietnam War, I mean, there was a, a, the, uh, what happened is in 1979, the black students took over Willard Strait Hall, which was the student union building, when took it over with guns as a protests. I mean, it was a huge deal. It shut the school down. And, uh, you know, and then the next year, you know, there was a Cambodia invasion. So, and that shut the school down again. There was also the whole Kent State thing. And, you know, for me as well, I remember, I remember going to Washington once on a protest and I, and I certainly wasn't very happy with the whole, uh, you know, Vietnam War, as, as I don't think very many people were at the time. So it was really disappointing to me that the government was doing what they did. And, and I, I, you know, but I, I, you know, I was still interested in trying to do a good job in school and, um, you know, and trying to think that I hopefully could do something useful with my life. Okay. But you weren't, were you drafted or 
Uh, I, you... I was I, I wasn't drafted. I, I yeah no. So that that didn't happen, fortunately. Uh, but I I um, but but I you know, but I basically was uh, deferred, and I so yeah. But I wasn't drafted, and then so I went to graduate school after that. Okay, and that's when you get into MIT, and it's that's right, chemical engineering. Um, uh, that's right. And and what were you um, thinking you might do with that, uh, or or did you just go into it because it it was interesting and it was something you were good at? Yeah, well, I, I, I that was part of it maybe, but also like I got some job offers when I was graduating Cornell, but there were things like to run a chemical plant. And boy, I wouldn't hire me to run a chemical plant. I'd probably have blown it up. And and so I, um, so I, I couldn't really decide what I wanted to do. I, I but I could see it wasn't that. And I looked at graduate schools, like, you know, like Princeton and Caltech and and uh, Wisconsin or and, and MIT. There were a number of really good ones. And and I, um, you know, they looked interesting. Like they had things like polymers and you know combining engineering with biology and advanced chemistry. And so I thought graduate school might be good. Maybe it would give me a clearer idea of what I might want to do. Um, and so I did apply to graduate school and I, you know, I was lucky enough to get into all those places and, you know, I went, decided to go to MIT. So you go there and it's, uh, it's the 1970s. The, um, the oil shocks are occurring. Uh, industry, you know, industry is always patrolling these great schools for chemical engineers, particularly oil. I know this. I went to Wisconsin and I had friends who, oh, who studied this yeah. this major. And I was jealous of how many, uh, <laughs> the kind of offers they could get, the salaries they could get. Nobody really wants to hire journalists straight out of college. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, Wisconsin was a great school in chemical engineering too. Uh, that, that in the 1970s was particularly great. Yeah, that's, yeah. But you, so um, the oil industry uh, came uh, calling you and, and, what was your reply? Yeah, so I interviewed uh, at different oil companies, and I I just wasn't excited about it. Actually, I, I wasn't like when I was there. I, I, I they were okay, and I could sort of see myself doing it. But I wasn't, you know. I'd fly back to Boston. I think, you know, do I want to do this the rest of my life? I mean, there were things like increasing the yield of some petrochemicals by very small percentages, and I felt like. I, I just didn't want to do that. I, I was trying to think, how could I do some kind of research that I felt would make more impact? Not that I really knew what I did want to do, but I could start to see that I didn't want to do that. So uh, so I didn't. Uh, I got 20 job offers and on doing those kinds of things. I mean, it wasn't because I was that good. They just had a, a lot of openings. You know, Exxon alone, I think, offered me four jobs and, um, you know, in different parts of the country. Uh, but... I, I wasn't excited about it. I just couldn't, you know, as I started to envision my life, not that I knew where it would go, but I didn't want to be doing, I, I could see I didn't want to do that. But as a graduate student at MIT, it sounds like you, you were thinking that academia suited you. I mean, you mentioned that you were the kind of guy who would probably blow up a chemical plant if you were in charge of it. So that's maybe you're not the most like detail oriented P's and Q's kind of guy. You Did you see that in, did you have enough self-awareness to see that academia and creativity and, um, uh, you know, the resiliency that's required to, to make it in that realm was, was what suited you? I don't know that I did. You know, what, 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 what I did do in graduate school, I got involved. So I, I, I really loved teaching. When I was a senior at Cornell, I was a teaching assistant, and I really liked that. And so when I came to MIT in 1970, I, I did some tutoring, and I liked that. And then... Some people were thinking about starting a school, a private school for poor kids uh, in Cambridge in 1971. And Cambridge, even though it's got Harvard and MIT, was very poor. There were like a lot of projects. There were 35% high school dropout rate. So they asked if I would help. And, and so I did. And I helped start or I started the math and science departments at, at this school. And I did a lot of teaching even when I was supposed to be doing my uh, graduate work. I'd go there almost every day, and I'd work with the high school students, and I, I really liked that again. And so I, I spent a lot of time at, at, when I was at MIT doing my thesis at that school, and that I think really helped shape things that I did want to do because I could see I got a lot of satisfaction out of the teaching, and 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 so 
something in my mind made me think, well, gee, how can I do something like that that can impact, you know, kids educationally? And, and, and I think there were, maybe that and a part of my mind made me think that being a professor someday might, might be something I'd enjoy. Now, this is something that you have in common with uh, your friend Lee Hood, you know, who I wrote the book about, um, that interest in um, youth education, science and math. Um, and, and for him, uh, I know that this was very valuable to him in terms of, I mean, it, it gave him satisfaction in, in helping other people, but also sharp, sharpened his clarity of thinking. You know, if you force yourself to learn something well enough to teach it and then communicate it effectively to other people, that's really good practice. Um, also helps polish one's communication skills in front of small groups, which comes in handy later on. Um, do you look back and think maybe you got some of those kind of benefits from the teaching at, an, at such an early time? I think, I think I got some of those benefits and also others. You know, it's interesting how people today and academics and myself included, you know, one of the big things you end up doing is writing grants and, you know, raising money. And when you start a school like that, that was probably, you know, as hard as it might be to raise money for research, it was far, far harder to raise money for that school. But I also got involved in, in, in that because I really wanted it to succeed. I wanted the kids to have a good education. And so I spent time trying to help write grants and trying to help find money and 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 so I, I I and I really was involved in everything in the school. I you know grant writing, raising money, governance, teaching, curriculum development, and so I think you know I learned so much about a lot of things from that school. That was never the reason why I did it. I I, I just felt. But I, I when I look back, I, I, the the question you're asking is very good. I, I I gained a lot from that experience. It sounds like your first startup, really. Yeah, well, in a way it was, though I had a lot of people working with me on it, and I certainly wasn't the leader of it, but I, I um, you know, it was, it was a great experience. So you're, um, you're making your way through graduate school, and uh, I know that this wasn't just all a charmed life, you know, uh, yellow brick road path for you to become a professor at MIT. Um, you got some rejection. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that experience? Sure. So, well, actually, a couple of things. So what happened first First on jobs? So I, when I looked at, um, you know, after I decided I wasn't going to work, I got all those offers at the oil companies and I decided I wasn't going to do that. I started thinking because of the, the school that I helped start that and, and because I had developed new chemistry curricula and things like that, that maybe what I should. And I saw an ad one day. Uh, to be assistant professor at City College of New York to develop new chemistry curricula. And I thought to myself, gee, that sounds really interesting. I'd really love to do that. So I wrote them a letter applying for a job, but they didn't write me back. And But, I, but at least it gave me this idea, this direction. And so I wrote to a lot of colleges then, um, you know, some not even very good ones, but to be assistant professor to develop new chemistry curricula. And pretty much none of them wrote me back. So I got a lot of rejection there. And then I started thinking about other ways that I might be able to help people. And I thought about um, medicine. And I wrote to a lot of hospitals and medical schools. And one after the next never bothered to write me back either or might say, you know, they don't, they're not interested. So I got a lot of rejection there. And, I mean, I could go on and, I, you know, but eventually, well, it just to uh, got to the chase to keep telling you about more rejection. So the finally one person, Judah Folkman, who was a famous surgeon, uh, you know, but I didn't know who he was, but he, he, somebody in my lab said I should write him. So I wrote him and he offered me a job. Well, I want to ask and, you about Judah Folkman in a minute, sure. but, but let's just okay. pause here for a second on this uh, dealing with rejection, because this is something that you know, all graduate students have to face. I mean, they're, they're going to have their their low moments <laughs> when that set of experiments doesn't work out for whatever reason, or just things don't go your way. Uh, and and you hear this a lot with successful people that it's not the distinguishing characteristic isn't always just the raw intellectual horsepower. I mean, that's that's there for for many, but it's this resilience, this grit, this ability to you know dust yourself off, get back up again. D- do you d- do you know where that came from for you? Did did you always have it, or did you did you have to work on that? 
I don't know. You know, I've always been stubborn, you know, so I, I don't know if I necessarily had a resilience, but I was I was a very stubborn person. I probably still am a very stubborn person. But so maybe it's that. I, I don't know. But uh, and I would, as I'll go over later, I had a lot more rejection. It didn't, didn't stop there. But I I um, I don't know what it is. I, I think just, you know, a, a type of stubbornness, maybe a, a belief in oneself. I'm not sure. Uh huh. Stubborn, how how so? Like you, you get an idea in your mind and just won't let go, just fixated on making it work? Well, like, when I, like later on in doing research, and research, of course, I, in my opinion, and certainly for me, I fail a lot more than I succeed. But of course, finally, if you succeed once on an idea, you're okay because then you can just repeat it. But I... I um, so I, I I guess like if it doesn't work right the first time or even the hundredth time, that's not necessarily going to stop me. I would just keep going for the two hundredth time until hopefully I got it right. And then hopefully there's enough judgment to recognize when you're beating your head against the wall and really need to shift gears and try something else. Well, well, hope, hopefully there is, but I don't know if. Uh, but I I'm sure I'm the kind of person that errs on the side of still beating your head against the wall probably too much. <laughs> Okay, so um, so you have this fateful encounter with uh, the late legendary Judah Folkman of Harvard Medical School, Children's Hospital, sort of the godfather of angiogenesis, this idea that uh, if you could cut off excessive blood vessel formation to tumors, that might be a way to fight cancer. Uh, now, this is, this is you know, very basic medical research at the time. You encounter him, lots and lots of skepticism. I mean, I don't just to put it that way, how did you how, how did you enter this this lab this realm? Yeah, well, for me, when he went over his ideas, of course, I didn't know any biology, and I, but I I thought it was just a fascinating idea. I thought, gee, this this would be fantastic if it worked, and I also felt it was so much more important than all the stuff that I'd seen in graduate school, and you know, and I didn't know that there was all the skepticism. I just thought, boy. If you could do what he's talking about, that that would have just such an enormous impact. And I thought, this is great. This is what I want to do. So I was, you know, thrilled to do it. I was actually the only engineer in the hospital, but and the only engineer in the surgery department. But I, I, I just thought this this is a great person and this is a great idea. Later on, I would see what you said that there was so much skepticism about it. But even then, I felt like it still was a great idea. And and if, if we could do it and prove it, and that was actually my job was to prove it and actually isolate the first angiogenesis inhibitors, that that I thought would was just a wonderful opportunity to do something important for the, really the first time in my life. Now, why did he want an engineer around the lab? Well, he what he's told me is he said, gee, he'd had a lot of other people try to do it who were bi- great biologists or great medical people, and, and they never solved the problem, so he... Thought, you know, he thought when he looked at my resume that I and talked to me, he said, well, you know, I should get somebody totally different who thinks differently than most people. And maybe if, if that person thinks differently, he'll be able to solve it. If you enjoy listening to these interviews with biotech newsmakers, you'll love reading Timmerman Report. You can subscribe to Timmerman Report for $149 a year per person. Discounts are available for companies and universities with multiple readers. Ask me about a group license at luke at timmermanreport.com. And have you heard about the Cancer Summit series of events I'm organizing this spring for the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center? These events are big fundraisers, part of a million-dollar Kilimanjaro Climb to Fight Cancer campaign I'm leading this year. R&D leaders like Hal Barron of GSK, David Shankine of GV and Agios, and Cindy Peretti of Foundation Medicine will not be climbing with me on the highest peak in Africa, but they are all coming together to speak at these events. Mark your calendars for the Boston Cancer Summit on April 16 and the San Francisco Cancer Summit on April 18. Go to TimmermanReport.com and click Kilimanjaro Climb for all the details. Okay, so what were you trying to do? We're talking about anti-angiogenesis, so uh, stopping that excessive blood vessel formation to the tumors. P. 
people were trying to do what at the time? And then what was your different take on it? Well, basically, I probably approached it as more, I mean, people had tried to isolate it. He had different people, I guess, in the past work on it. And I guess, you know, they, they didn't succeed. And I think other people had tried before. But like you said, a lot of people didn't believe it. I probably approached it more like an engineering problem. So, you know, kind of step by step. First, uh, you know, you need a bioassay. Bioassay we talked, Joe DeFolkman and I and others in the lab talked about was the eye of a rabbit. And that you'd put a certain type of tumor, what's called a V2 carcinoma in the eye. That would cause blood vessels to grow. But then you needed, and, and that was good in the sense that you could visualize those blood vessels with a ophthalmic microscope. But then, of course, it took nine or 10 weeks to, for that to happen. So then you had to have a way to stop that from happening. And the eye is small. And so we had this idea of putting little slow-release pellets in the eye uh, that would, whatever we would extract, uh, that we could test it. But the problem with that was the eye is super sensitive. Almost anything you put in the eye causes inflammation, which means more blood vessels. And the molecules we were trying to isolate and test were usually very large. And people didn't think that plastics or polymers, which is what we were using, uh, could slowly deliver them. They thought either they'd come out right away or they'd never come out at all. So, but I went, again, this was an example. People didn't think you could do it, but I went through probably hundreds of different ways of trying to do this and almost everyone failed. Finally, I found one that worked. And of course, like I say, one's all you need. And because I did that, we published a paper in 1976 in Nature showing that you could take these biocompatible polymers and really release molecules of any size or charge. And then we took those polymers and tested all these different fractions that we'd isolated uh, and we published a paper in Science also in 1976 showing that for the first time you could have these diffusible angiogenesis inhibitors and they'd stop blood vessels in the rabbit eye. So it was really kind of a, maybe more of an engineering approach to solving that problem. Now, were these your first couple of big scientific papers? They really were. I mean, I had published some things from my thesis, but those were sort of more chemical engineering you know, uh, papers like in the, what's called the AICHE journal, I mean, the impact factor of that's not quite science or nature. and uh, But yeah, they were. I mean, they were the first kind of major things that I'd done. And I, so and I was thrilled, I mean, that that, that happened. So 1976, this is before monoclonal antibodies. I mean, Kohler and Milstein did their thing in like 75, I think. So what, I think that's right. These were not um, like therapeutic grade um molecules that you were encapsulating no. in polymers that that all came later <laughs> uh, absolutely not only that they weren't purified they were they were fractions that that we'd isolated and uh but nonetheless uh, even though they were fractions and they weren't purified they showed that you could uh they they, they stopped the blood vessels cold it was an incredibly ex exciting thing to see in fact when you had the polymer normally the vessels grew over them like a sheet uh, you know, just solid red. And then when you put the inhibitor in, it just totally avoided it. You know, it's like this big zone of inhibition and they weren't as high up. So it was a, it was a very exciting thing to see. Okay. And similarly, so with the polymers, uh, there I did use purified, you know, enzymes and things like that to prove to myself and ultimately others that you could, you could do this. Now, this was during your, I guess you were a postdoc? At this time? Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. So, but, and this became your, your ticket to the faculty? Well, yes and no. It's interesting. So, um, so I, so after three years, I mean, I actually loved being in Folkman's lab. I could have done that forever. I was really enjoyed being a postdoc, and but a lot of my friends said probably not a good idea to do that your whole life, and so I did. I started applying to chemical engineering departments around the United States, and actually, a number of them interviewed me. Maybe because I had papers in some of those journals, but anyhow, not a single chemical engineering department offered me a job. They all said that this kind of bio stuff I was doing didn't make any sense. And so I got rejected everywhere. Which sounds kind of strange because, I mean, bioengineering is a long and storied discipline. I mean, there's a whole world of medical devices, of course, uh, kind of like larger scale, I guess, but it hadn't gone and fused with molecular biology. Maybe that's well, that's a part of it, and I would say that that what happened was so there was the mechanic. So the way it would be at that time is mechanical engineering, 
departments. They, they did some things in medical devices. Chemical engineering departments, though, the only thing they really did was mostly met what's called, I'll call mathematical modeling. In fact, you know, University of Wisconsin, which you mentioned, that was a great place for mathematical modeling. They had Bird and Stewart and Lightfoot, and that was, a, you know, really sort of what was viewed as, as the most important thing in chemical engineering was mass transport. So most chemical engineering at that time uh, that was bio at all, and it wasn't a lot of bio in, in the chemical engineering departments, but it was sort of aimed at understanding transport through an artificial kidney or things like, or, you know, membrane oxygenators, things like that. Whereas what I was trying to do, like you said, it was more, you know, inventing things or isolating new molecules and developing, you know, these slow-release polymer, you know, chemistry. So, and, and that wasn't really being done at all. And, and I wasn't doing modeling. And, you know, in fact, I remember some interviews, people said, well, can't you model those things? And I said, well, we don't even understand what's going on, so I don't see how you could model it. And then they, and I said, I'd love to understand what's going on, but they felt like, well, then, you know, it doesn't make any sense. You, doesn't, you don't fit into a chemical engineering department. And they'd be talking about all these quantum theories and this and that, and I felt like, boy, I mean, it's a long time before we're going to ever be able to do that. But they didn't see it that way, so they didn't want to hire me. But it's okay. Okay, but you, so how did you end up going to MIT on the faculty? Yeah, so what happened was, so no chemical engineering department would hire me, but Judah Folkman uh, had met Nevin Scrimshaw. They were on an advisory board together, and Nevin Scrimshaw was the head of the nutrition department at MIT. And he told Scrimshaw that, you know, he said that I was pretty good, so... Scrimshaw, he was what I'd call kind of like at the time a, a benevolent dictator of a department head. So he met me and he liked me, I guess. And so he decided to hire me. Of course, he didn't ask the rest of the department what they thought. So he hired me. And and so I went there. Of course, one of the things, the stories I tell, and it's true, is that a year after he hired me, he left. And uh, so a lot of the senior faculty then decided to give me advice and their advice is I should leave also. And <laughs> that was pretty discouraging because I didn't, they didn't really feel I fit. And, uh, you know, Mike Marletta, who's one of my friends, he's a you know, famous chemist at Berkeley, you know, was once telling the story about how, uh, you know, all the junior faculty would be going, you know, out to a restaurant and they'd have dinner with the senior faculty. And he was telling the story about how I was telling one of these senior faculty members about my ideas on drug delivery. And he said, the guy you know, was talking to me and then and he pulled the cigar out of his mouth and he blew a cloud of smoke in my face and said, you know, Bob, you better start looking for another job. And that's a true story. And this is just because people just didn't appreciate drug delivery, this polymer work. Um, it just didn't, didn't fit in the context of the department. I think there were multiple things. First, people, a lot of people felt after we wrote the papers that, it didn't make any sense scientifically. They didn't think large molecules could diffuse out of polymers. So first there was, and so I got actually my first nine grants rejected too. So at any rate, so people didn't think that could happen. Secondly, yeah, they didn't think the drug delivery ideas I had or, or the area was very important. Um, and, 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 and I guess the other thing I'd say, you know, there's always um, departments, uh, you know, and I see this still today, people, always think, well, really the kinds of people they, they should hire are people like them, only younger. In other words, they should be doing the things that they're doing. So the nutrition department had people doing biochemical engineering, which was more fermentation uh, or microbiology. They had people doing nutrition. They had people doing neuroscience, people doing toxicology, and people doing food science. And I, what I was doing didn't fit. I mean, you know, in, in, in any of their eyes. So I, so I had many, many things going against me. So you're kind of a junior faculty orphan at this point. You don't have a sponsor hanging around protecting you um, or, or giving you a lot of advice. Uh, you're not tenured yet. So this right. sounds kind of uh, kind of fragile, like it could have gone one way or another. Right. Um, you're absolutely but, right. But, and this is, this is something that I learned from Hood, too, about the importance of taste in science. And I, I, I mean that in the sense of picking projects wisely, <laughs> uh, an area to focus on. Because uh, there's lots of things you could do in science that, you know, might get you published, but aren't that important. <laughs> um, and then right, there are really right. important projects that you can just latch into and work on and peel back one layer after another of the onion and, and really uh, um, 
make a mark. And and you some I mean, looking back now with anti-angiogenesis and polymer drug delivery, I mean, you can say yes, um, that was uh, you're exhibiting good taste, good choice of project. In in retrospect, yes. <laughs> uh, was that just luck? <laughs> Yeah, well, it was luck in a way. I, I guess the way I look at it, I mean, it was somewhat luck. But, you know, what do they say? Luck favors, you know, like, again, it does go back to the fact that I was at least interested in doing something that I felt wasn't like what I was going to be doing in the oil companies. I wasn't going to be doing that. I would rather at least take a chance on doing something that at least in my naive mind could have a big impact rather than increasing the yield of something by a tiny percent, you know, so I was looking for something um, that, that I felt would be important. I think, you know, not that I want to compare myself to Watson, but with this question, but I think Watson said, you know, that with, or Crick, you know, that if you, with, when they asked about DNA, they, they said, you know, if you're looking, if you're not looking for gold or, if, or maybe if you are, you probably remember this better than I, but at least you give yourself a chance to find it somehow. So I think at least I was looking for something important. Uh, whereas if I went, in my opinion, to the oil companies, I wasn't looking for something important. Mm-hmm. So okay, at so you I had, had a ch- at least I at least I had a chance to make it happen. You had instincts to do something important. Yeah, uh, instincts. That's a good 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 word. Yes. Okay. Okay. Now, um, so how did you end up developing a more secure position there at MIT? Real quick, and then we'll get into um, you know your relations with industry. Yeah, well, I mean, it took some time, but, you know, what would happen over time is that people started using what we did. And um, and and the students also loved what we did. You know, I got wonderful students. And so over time, you know, I did get tenure. I actually even got tenure early. And, you know, and then I'd start, people would start using our papers. Our papers got widely cited and, and they got be, they'd be used by people in industry all over the world. Uh and so, you know, what they do in tenure cases at MIT is they write letters to outside people and, you know, heads of pharmaceutical companies, you know, well-known professors. And they were nice enough to say that what I was doing was important and, you know, was having a, you know, changing the pharmaceutical industry. So they kept me. Now, <laughs> so what, still what, here. what years are we talking that this was occurring when you become sort of like a made man? Well, it's hard to say. Things would ha- start to happen in the 80s. So, like I say, I started... I did the postdoc in 74. I joined MIT in 77. I got tenure in 82, uh, 1982. But then uh, I'd say over the next six years, you know, the, uh, you know, I kept publishing and I'd become full professor. And then all of a sudden, like the award started to come, I'd get elected to the National Academy of Medicine in 1989, to the National Academy of Science and National Academy of Engineering in 1992. And, you know, and then I'd, you know, get more grants, you know, students started doing well. So, so, so things, you know, they, they kept going, you know, better and better as, as time would go on. Yeah. Getting into the three national academies, that's probably one of the the greater achievements. I mean, on your whole list of, of accomplishments, uh, that's very rare. Well, that, of course, that, 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 that's an honor. I mean, I didn't really do, you know, that's other people electing you, but, but, but I mean, it, 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 but the thing is, it was, the accomplishments were for the things that I'd probably done in the, you know, seventies and early eighties. And, and so it's just, which originally people thought were, were, weren't very good, but now they, you know, because people were using them, they started to change their mind, I guess. Well, and biotech was uh, taking off as an industry. Yes. Pharmaceuticals yes. was uh, taking off. Uh, so there was that market reality, kind of some wind at your back. Yes. Um, now, um, so you get your tenure in the early 80s. MIT, you know, has this long history. It's, it's you know, the, the schools called, the, the, the sports teams are called the engineers. <laughs> and engineers, by right. their very nature, have an applied bent. I mean, it's not uh, verboten to work with industry. I mean, that, that's the idea of engineering right. is that you apply your ideas. So the cultural milieu that you were in was a favorite. Well, I mean, people had their skepticism and doubts about all this collaboration in biology, uh, between biology and pharmaceutical industry. But that wasn't a big obstacle for you. Well, I don't know that that was a big obstacle. I think that that um, you know what happened with you know I'd watch other people do things and start companies and work with industry, and I I wasn't thinking about that. I really wanted industry to 
use what we did, I, I, that, that would mean a lot to me. I wanted to not just write papers. I wanted to see the work we did do some good and help people. And so, um, but it took a long time. Nobody seemed to care, as, as I mentioned. But starting in the mid-'80s, some companies did care, and they called me up, and they would ask me to consult, and some of them licensed our patents and gave me grants. On the other hand, they were big companies, and unfortunately, that didn't lead anywhere other than me getting a better car and me getting, uh, you know, grant support. And so that that was good. But they, the company, those large companies, didn't develop the stuff, even though they originally said that they were going to. And that was what gave me the idea to, you know, start thinking about small companies. And so you start getting to know the venture capital community. That's taking off too. Um, how did you think about um, the point of transfer from like, here's something that I work on in my lab and now it's time to uh, pass the baton to those people in industry and, and I can help out kind of once in a while as an SAB member yeah. or a consultant. Yeah. So the evolution was, so, you know, I'd done a little bit of consulting in the early eighties and then I worked with a couple of large companies where they'd licensed the patents and like I said, give me a grant and they would were developing in our technology themselves and I would be a consultant. And I, and, and I, w- I was excited about that too, but I, I could start to see that that wasn't, they weren't getting anywhere. They'd kind of give up if the first few experiments didn't work and the first few experiments rarely work. So, you know, but then what happened, I think it was 1985, uh, you know, Sal Snyder, uh, he had started a company, a very famous neuroscientist at Hopkins Nova Pharmaceuticals, and they had raised a lot of money, and he some of, some of their vice presidents came up to visit me, and they had extra money, and they said, well, they want to, they'd heard about me, they want to license something from us, and I said, well, what? And they said, well, we're, we're flexible, so, you know, since they were from Baltimore, I said, well, we're, we have these new polymers, we're trying to synthesize polyanhydrides, because I had some ideas on that, and said, we're working with uh, one of the guys at Johns Hopkins, Henry Brem, who's, and we have some ideas on, on, you know, brain cancer treatments and, well, maybe you could license that and fund me and fund him. And so they did. And they hired one of my uh, graduate students. They gave us a grant and ultimately that would lead to these Gliadel wafers that are, have been used for the last uh, 23 years. But, but what was important to me was that I could see that this tiny company that had like 50 people instead of these giant multi-billion dollar corporations, they would kind of live or die based on our project. And, and they worked all the time to try to just get it out, you know, preclinical trials, clinical trials, manufacturing, and ultimately, you know, it would get approved by the FDA. So that that made a big difference to me. So then when I'd start to see venture capitalists come around and wanting to start companies, I was much more receptive because I could see these small companies could really, you know, do something. And, you know, the rest is history. I mean, you've started 20-odd companies. I mean, I don't know what the latest count is. You've had a hand in a lot. Um, yeah. And, and now it's, um, your, your field of expertise is so relevant in so many things. It's just an exploding period of biology. It amazes me every day, having covered this stuff for getting close to 20 years. Um, all these new modalities of therapeutics, you know, whether you're talking about messenger RNA or CRISPR or, um, you know, new types of small molecules and biologics. I mean, often, often delivery comes, they have to go through that delivery test, <laughs> that, that pressure point at some point to prove that they can actually do what uh, is envisioned in a Petri dish um, in, in a living organism in a practical way. Um, so how do you set priorities when there's so much interest and demand now in your, what your lab does? I mean, how do you separate yeah. kind of the good ideas from the bad? Well, yeah, I'm never sure that I'm right. I mean, and, and of course, it's not just me. We have like great people in the lab. But if I were to use one sort of criteria, I would say impact. And that impact could be because of either the, the value of the basic research we do or the applied research we do. But it's sort of my vision of what might be game changing. And I might not be right, but that would be the window that I, I look at it from. You know, and I also part of that is how do you do the most good for the most people eventually? Mm-hmm. And how do you pick collaborators? I know you have some long-standing people that you work with over and over and over, but um, are there certain kind of qualities that you look for or, or that kind of immediately turn you off? 
Yeah, well, I think the things I look, I mean, some of them, my long-term collaborators are probably my really good friends, you know, like like Alex Klebanoff, who was, you know, with me, you know, or Henry Bram or Jay Vacanti. I mean, these are people that I've known since the 70s. And um, Mike Marletta, other, you know, people that I've known for like a really, really long time. And that, that, but, you know, I, I'd say very often I, they're nice people or people I enjoy spending time with. There are also people that that I think have very good ideas and 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 and, and want to do something um, important. So, uh, and very often there are people that could be in my own building who you know you just get to know. But a lot of times it's people who who you've gotten to know well just because I always think it's like you could end up collaborating with the person next door just because you know you're their friend and vice versa. So you're looking for, I mean, I guess people that are kind of intellectually and, and uh, personally simpatico. You got some shared vision. I mean, you mentioned to me the other day the Gates Foundation, that you, you do a lot of work with, uh, with them. Um, why is that? Well, that, that really fits into what you asked me before. I, I felt when they approached me, when Bill and Lowood and others approached me that, about this, that you know, they're trying to do some real good. Uh, for the world, for a huge number of people. And I felt like the things that they and I were talking about could have a, a, a big impact on the world, and I feel like it will. And so that, to me, seemed like a terrific opportunity to use the kind of science and engineering we're doing to to have a big impact on a whole group of people that would be one, you know, you could really help them, and, and, and I would love to be able to do that. So that, so they, they've been terrific to work with, so probably... You know, nearly half of our lab is devoted to things that could help the developing world. What kind of projects uh, are you working on for them? I, I've seen a little bit on, you know, sort of longer acting nutraceuticals, I guess you could say, uh, less frequently dosed vaccines. Um, others? Yeah. Yeah. So, well, some of the issues have to do with what I'd call patient compliance, because uh, the World Health Organization would point out that as bad as patient compliance is in the United States, and it's very bad. I think the United States, I'm sorry, the New York Times wrote that, uh, you know, something like 100,000 deaths in heart disease alone occur because people don't take their medicines and it's $300 billion of health care costs. But in the in the developing world, it's actually much worse. So, yeah, so, you, you know, we've been working on ways where you might be able to take an entire course of treatment with a single pill uh, so that, or you could make pills that could last... Uh, you know, and or I should say pills that could last virtually any length of time, a week, a month, a year. We've also worked a way to potentially create, this was published in science, make a vaccine that you could give a single shot rather than many shots and have all of the doses be in that shot uh, by having them come out at specific time points. And and like you mentioned in nutrition, we're working on ways of giving micronutrients like iron and zinc and others and in, in, in ways that could be much better. We're developing new aerosols that could help uh, people in the developing world. They'd be much simpler to take and, um, you know, and might be able to help people with respiratory distress syndrome, um, new birth types of birth control systems that the woman could, could control herself. Uh, so there's, there's a, a, a lot of different, uh, different things that we're, 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 we're doing with them, new types of medical record keeping and, uh, so that they, and they, they they've been a pleasure to work with, and and they've been you know big supporters of of the labs and even some of the companies that have spun out of out of what we've done. It does seem like impact is a common thread there. I mean, if any of these things were to work, I mean, they really could be applied to a whole lot of people. Now, it might not make the cover of Nature or Science if you take uh, a vaccine that's already effective in a two or three dose regimen and turn it into a single dose, but that's really important for the world. Uh, yeah, yes. And, 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 and by the way, you, and what you could, and, and even though it might not have made the cover of science, it did get in science. We came up with a new, as a, as a pretty big article. And, you know, and, and so what we did is we came up with a new printing technique that really enables you to put potentially any vaccine in like these discrete sort of, sort of micro or nano packets. And then you have these little covers. And by changing the type of cover, the way you print it, you could make the vaccine come out at virtually any length of time and, and exactly when you want it, like at a week, a month, a year. And, and you could put many, many different uh, vaccines in there. So um, 
So that that was a paper that we wrote uh, about a year and a half ago. Not that we're not that it's ready for patients yet, but it's but the fundamentals are are there because again, that's like some new chemistry and engineering that the the people in our lab developed, and and I hope someday that it could do just what you said. It could just impact a tremendous number of of people. There's like so many you know babies and children that die because of of, of you know lack of vaccination. So it would be a wonderful thing if we can if we can help them. Yeah, if you need to travel four to six hours to get to the nearest clinic, chances are you're only getting there once, <laughs> not two that, or three times right. over over a couple of months. It's just not happening. Yeah, um, yeah, and this does, this has the potential to change that. I mean, to change, you know, to just just give that single injection. So yeah, we're working hard on those things. Now, one other real big impact project you had published recently was this oral insulin delivery uh, that that I think was in Science. Another area where there's just a ton of skepticism. Everybody's been working on insulin delivery, whether it's inhaled or oral, for years and years. You got this hostile environment in the stomach trying to deliver this large molecule into the gut lining. I mean, uh, just real quick, I mean, what what makes you think that you've got an answer this time? Well, it worked on pigs, it, and it worked on pigs as when we when they swallowed it as well as when we injected it. And, and, and scientifically, it, 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 to me, it makes sense. Briefly, what we did, this was done by Gio Traverso, who's a gastroenterologist, uh, and Alex Abramson was our graduate student and, and working with Nova Nordisk. But basically, we made this pill, and we figured out there's sort of a couple of engineering and chemistry advances. One is that you swallow it, and, and we sort of modeled it after a certain type of tortoise so that after you swallow it, it, it self-writes itself so that it'll, it'll land in a certain place in the stomach in exactly the same way every single time. So it's facing the stomach. And so, it, 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 so that, that's the first part. And then what happens is now facing the stomach, uh, we have a little osmotic. There's a, what I'll call a micropost inside it. And that could be made out of 100% insulin. But it can't get out right away because blocking it, is uh, is this little and it's say in a spring or something, and blocking it is this little piece of sugar, but within a certain amount of time that sugar will dissolve and you can control it by the amount and the thickness of it, and so say it's fifty minutes. So the idea is you swallow this, it it goes into the stomach, it's facing the stomach now in exactly the right way, and then after a certain period of time, uh, like say fifty minutes, the micropost shoots out, so it's ejected out. You know, and so it's like almost a needle going through the stomach. The stomach, you don't feel a lot of pain. Uh, you know, people have gone in the other way by endoscopy, and they can do this kind of thing. But now we're going in through the through your mouth. So basically, the, the little insulin post is ejected out, you know, into the stomach lining, into the bloodstream. And basically, if you compare that to what happens when you inject the same amount, um, the same way through the skin, you get exactly the same result. So an, an injection from very, inside and without a steel needle with a, with something biodegradable. Exactly, it's one hundred percent degradable because it's the drug, and so it, so really it was uh, you know it's so so that was exciting and of course it it, it well, obviously it'll take a lot more work before we know whether this will help humans, but we hope someday these kinds of principles will. Now, we spoke earlier about skepticism among peers, uh, and that that matters for a number of reasons. But one of them is because of that's where those are the people who uh, sit on, you know, NIH peer review grant committees and decide who gets the money for various things. Um, and you, you also mentioned the role of philanthropy. Uh, that is, the Gates Foundation supports a lot of your work. How do you think of these two different sources and the roles that they play uh, to support the innovative type of work that you want to do? Yeah, well, I think they're both good in different ways. You know, I still feel, even though I have my objections about some of the NIH reviews we get, I'm sure every academic does, I like the fact that at least they tell you what they don't like, so you can go address it the next time. And and I think that's very helpful. Uh, and, and, and we've always had NIH grants, uh, despite my early difficulty getting grants turned down. But, you know, we've had them for many, many years, and they've been, I, I, I feel privileged to have had them. And They've, they've really supported a lot of what we've done. But the philanthropy that we've gotten, you know, especially, you know, more of the last 10 or 15 years, you know, maybe we've gotten it because a lot of products are based on the chemistry and engineering we've done. But, you know, the philanthropy from the Gates Foundation, we've also gotten it from cancer foundations and from uh, juvenile diabetes foundations and places like that. And I, it, that's been wonderful, too. I mean, those are more focused, but... Those, those are things that have enabled us to do 
a lot of research and actually have do research that can impact you know a lot of people like you and I were just talking about with the Gates Foundation. So and 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 I think it, uh, you know we've learned a lot from that research and those are principles that I think can be widely useful. So I think having the combination of those two and I'd, I'd probably add a third tier which is industrial support. Um, you know, they've, they've, I'm glad we have all those. And I, I feel it's been great for the students because they get to also see all this and they get to see, well, do, you know, the whole things with NIH, the things with foundations, the things with companies. And I think it helps them shape how they're thinking about their futures. Now, having recently turned 70, kind of a milestone birthday, did you have some time to reflect or you know, think about like the special place you're in, in your career uh, to have have all these achievements and to, you know, and, and all the benefits that come with that, the, the support for all of your ideas from all these different stakeholders that you mentioned, um, like there's a special kind of responsibility and, or a moment for both you and the op- set of opportunities in front of you that, um, you know, that you've got a, you, you got some unfinished business here to take care of. I mean, I, I started at the beginning by saying you're not resting on your laurels. You're not. <laughs> you're, you're working. You're working just like you did. You know, 20, 30 years ago. Um, yeah. How, how do you think about this stage of your career? Well, I, I, I you know, I, I, I hope it lasts for a long time. I mean, I feel just very happy that we've got you know such wonderful people in the lab. I love working with students and postdocs, and you know, I still get a thrill of. You know, when a paper gets accepted, when a grant gets accepted, when a product gets approved by the FDA, all those things are exciting and important to me. I, so I, you know, my goals are, you know, the same kinds of things, you know, to come up with ideas that I feel will be important to get those ideas to the point where they can really help people and then to train the best people in, in my field in the world. And, you know, that's that's what I try to do as best I can. And I hope I could do it for many more years. We'll see. But I'm going to try as long as my health is good. So far, it has been. Well, you do have quite an alumni network that uh, that um, has spread around academia and industry. And um, I think a lot of them came to your birthday party, which is always a good occasion to have a science symposium. <laughs> yeah, no, it was gigantic. I mean, 600 to 700 people came. And, you know, I think... I know my wife is helping people put, you know, there's some book with like a thousand, you know, letters or something and of people who have worked in the lab. And, it, you know, for me, it's just a thrill to see how well they've done. I, you know, I think there's hundreds that are professors, I think over 300 and quite a few, as you said, have started companies or working companies again, many hundreds. And so it's, it's been exciting and it was exciting to see them. Some I hadn't seen in a number of years, though we have always had a pretty close network in, in the lab and, and people stay in touch pretty well. So, but it was it was great to have everybody there in in one giant room. Do you have fun a, of me. <laughs> do, do you have a standard piece of advice that you would like to offer uh, younger scientists starting out, or or maybe is there a piece of advice that you you would give to uh, your younger self if you could do something over? Yeah, well, I guess the advice you know when I give like commencement speeches, sometimes I've been asked to do that and. I think the kind of advice that I usually try to tell people, and it is in a way what I've done and other people do, I mean, is not not necessarily knowingly, but what I often try to say if I'm going to sum it up quickly is to dream big dreams, dreams that you feel can change the world and make it a better place. And a lot of times, you know, you're going to run into a lot of obstacles. People will tell you your idea is wrong, it'll never work. But I think that's, you know, rarely true that if you really work hard and keep trying, you know, that, that, uh, you can hopefully make those dreams come true. It doesn't happen easily, but it can happen. Now, last thing I want to ask, Bob, is that you mentioned that Everest talk that I gave at that conference. Um, and what I really was talking about there is uh, some of that human side of group dynamics, you know, the, the uh, working with people, showing patience and self-control and empathy when you are um, in it together uh, to achieve something big. Um, that uh, that seems to apply in so many realms of science and business, and and maybe you know they don't teach it really. You know, in management, you don't get a whole lot of management training when you, you know, get your first lab and and need to uh, work with people. What? Um, how do you think about just real briefly on on managing groups of people? You, yeah, well, every well, I mean, I I think of it as a professor first, and you know the way I think about it is, you know, as a professor who trains graduate students and postdocs, is that students their whole life, you know, what happens in school, grammar school, high school, 
They're always judged on how good their answers are, like on a test to other people's questions. But in life, what's really important isn't just the your ability to give good answers. You're really judged ultimately, I think, on the quality of questions you ask. And that's not something they teach in school. And so to me, I kind of feel my job is to, or part of my role, is to try to help people when they become in our lab as a graduate student or postdocs, go from somebody who can give good answers to somebody who can also ask good questions. And the way I try to do it is I give people a lot of rope. I, I want them to think of this place as an idea factory, as a place where they can, you know, come up with really good ideas. They'll probably fail a lot, just like I did. But, you know, but if they hang in there, they'll, they'll and, and, and keep thinking about questions they can ask, they'll, you know, they'll, they'll probably do okay. And so it's, it's kind of, I kind of had a very loose management style in academia. With companies, I think it's sometimes a little different because there you, you know, you have to ultimately make some money and make a profit. But in the lab, which is still my primary thing, it's, it's to, to try to, you know, just help people think of the best questions in the world and the best dreams. And in a company, it's, it's also those dreams and hopefully to make those dreams become products that can change the world. Well, it's uh, it's showing some self awareness that you know you recognize there's different kinds of management styles that work in different kinds of structures. Um, let, last thing I wanted to ask Bob, just like in a sentence, if you had one extra hour per day, uh, what would you do with that? Well, I'd probably keep working. <laughs> I'd probably keep working. It's a great question. I've never been asked that before. But I'd probably, you know, I'd, I'd probably keep working or exercise or spend time with my family. Those are the you know, the three things that I do. And uh, so I'd, I'd, I'd probably, maybe I'd do 20 minutes of each. I don't know. <laughs> a little more of what you already do. It's a good uh, It's a good sign that you're doing things you love to do. Bob Langer, thanks very much for joining me today on the Long Run Podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's great to talk to you. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the producer and editor. Music comes from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.